Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Alexandra Paul. How are you? I'm very well, Joshua. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm very glad to have you here. I was just saying to you how I first came across you was from your TED Talk. I don't know if that's the place that most people come across you, but it was one of the places that someone spoke about population, not making excuses knowledgeably and approachably. And I was like, I got to have this person on my podcast. And then I found out, oh, she's like super famous too. And I'd love to talk to you a bit about the topic of that podcast, but I think it's hard not to also talk about how I think most people know about you, that you're a famous actress and a model and things like that. Do you mind sharing a bit of your background? I'm sure you've told it many times. Well, no, I'm happy to, because there are a lot of people who don't know about me. I am an actress. Uh, I've been an actress uh, for uh, almost 40 years now. When I was 18, I I was modeling a little bit, but I never considered myself a model. I mean, I guess for a couple of years, I was a model in my teens, but acting is... I consider myself an actress, an athlete, and an activist. Those are the areas of my life outside of my personal life that are very important to me. So I became an actress when I uh, starred in a TV movie. And back in 1982, TV movies were really big. And it was called Paper Dolls. And it was about modeling. I played a model. They were looking for an unknown model. So I was able to get plucked from modeling without having any acting experience except for some acting classes. And from there, I went, I was just really fortunate. I decided not to go to college. I was taking a year off before college when this happened. And I was just very fortunate to get cast in roles. Like my first feature film was the horror film, Christine, which remains uh, popular to this day. It, It is probably the place more people know me from than my population talk besides Baywatch, the television series, which I was on for five years in the 90s, uh, which because it was the number one show in the world at the time did garner me a lot of recognition. So I've, I've just had a mixture of working with actors like Tom Hanks in the comedy Dragnet or Kevin Costner in the bicycling film American Flyers to starring with Pierce Brosnan in a couple films and doing starring in 15 Lifetime movies. People think that my career is very much at odds with my person personal life because I'm so earnest in my personal life with my activism. And frankly, most of my acting jobs have been really light fare, fun, light fare, which I have enjoyed doing immensely. Now I'm going to work up to what I talked about before about the TED Talk because I've heard some of the things you talked about and there were two big influences that were huge influences for me as well. One was acting. Well, I'm not an actor, but... I did take Meisner Technique classes one summer and a very intensive course. And I thought I was going to dabble a little bit and it was just life-changing. And this was after business school when I'd taken all these classes in leadership. And a lot of the social emotional skills that leaders dream of getting, actors have in spades. And I didn't realize like how much it could open me up and express. And um, the listeners can't see this, but your eyes are lit up right now. (laughs) Well, about what Meisner, how Meisner changed your life. Meisner, for listeners, is a is an acting technique that uh, it's a school of acting, and there are many different ways that actors get to uh, the characters that they want and uh, techniques that they use to get to the emotional places they want. And Meisner is one of them. So, tell us a little bit about your experience with Meisner and why it changed you. Well, don't mind if I do. It was uh, the story is that. Before business school, I had never taken a class in leadership. I didn't know classes in leadership existed. I didn't know that you could learn 
to change how you behave, to change how you perceive. To, those things, I mean, I have a PhD in physics. I knew how to you know, measure the mass of an electron, things like that. And then I took these classes. And I was like, oh, you can change how you behave. But what business school taught was to read and write papers about these things. What I would call like music appreciation, as opposed to learning how to play piano. So I go out in the world and I'm thinking, I got you know, really high grades at a really good school. So I'm going to, now I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a great leader. And I walk into meetings and I'm like, I didn't know what to do. And it happened to be that I was watching inside the actor's studio because I enjoyed the show. The more that I watched, the more two things happened. I noticed that the actors had the skills that I was looking for much more than my professors did in school. And over and over again, they kept saying they dropped out of school. They got kicked out of school. They didn't go to school. So maybe they'd finish high school, but that, then they'd stop. And I was like, how is it that the ones at the pinnacle of, of the educational system aren't, are underperforming relative to the ones who dropped out? This is 2008. By chance, a friend of mine, he saw the writing on the wall. Well, the economic collapse, his business, he sold his business and went to this Meisner school, took classes in acting. And I started asking him, why is it that actors excel at what people who study this stuff don't do well in and he kept answering me and answering me. And finally, he was like, Josh, if you really want to get this, take the course. So I was kind of taking it in kind of academic way. Like, how do they teach this? But I did say, before starting, I put off everything except family. So while I took this course, I was open to becoming an actor. I was open to like, and in order to start doing all this repetition exercises, I'm like, what is this? And then suddenly I start expressing things that I hadn't expressed before and sensing in others what not just what they're saying and, and realizing what a character is and what, what's going on beneath the surface. I, I can't put this into words very well, but I was learning by practice. I was basically doing scales, except not piano for something else, for something that I deeply valued, but was getting nowhere before. And so I ended up taking Meisner technique and applying it to leadership to teach leadership that way. And then NYU hired me and I became, so I teach leadership that way. And the book became a bestseller. It's like, uh, all I'm doing is taking what Meisner did and just switching the exercises a little bit, but the structure is the same. Well, Meisner focuses a lot on listening and reacting honestly, immediately. So not having that barrier that we humans in society, because we want to be approved of so much have where we're thinking a lot about ourselves instead of really focusing on the other person and what they're saying, we're all so worried. That's why people forget people's names right away when they're introduced is because they aren't focused on the person to whom they're being introduced. They're focused on, oh, how am I presenting myself, right? And so as an actor, because you're inhabiting characters, you have to listen to the other person and react as the character. So listening is just a huge part of Meisner. And it's something that getting your focus off yourself forces you to get your focus off yourself. And I think that's really important, don't you, in terms of interacting in the world and making people feel good about themselves in the real world, in the boardroom, because as they say, it's not exactly what you say that affects people, it's how you make them feel. And if someone feels like you're listening to them and hearing them, they feel special and they like you and they think you're a genius. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's a more authentic experience. I mean, I like when people listen to me. I, I, I wish I listened better. How about you? Because my understanding is that before you took acting classes, you didn't, that made a big change for you as well. And I feel like that has contributed, like was a big change in your life. Did I read that right? 
Yes, yes. I was modeling, as I said, in New York for uh, modeling uh, an agency named Wilhelmina, and they had a commercial department. And I was 16 or 17 at the time. And they said, you know, we'd like you to take some acting classes because we want to send you up on some commercials. So I said, okay. But I was on my way to college to be an environmental scientist. I was accepted at Stanford and was supposed to start uh, that in September after I graduated from high school, obviously. So I didn't take the acting classes. I didn't think it was going to be a big deal, but it was when I and it's probably the same that you had is that I came from a family who went to museums. We did not create art. That was just not what I ever expected. I never even knew that side of myself existed. So going to acting class and expressing myself and then having fun with it and being feeling free and really focusing on emotions and listening and um, interactions was very freeing for me and actually cathartic, I have to say. It's like therapy, some, some acting classes, because <laughs> they really force you to go into your feelings and your pain and your happiness and, and therefore your past. And another big piece of it for me is, is you see what people are saying and you see their overt behavior, but there's a lot underneath that in myself, I know there's a lot more to me than what people see, but knowing that there's more to others and what what drives them is generally the emotions which come from their past experiences and things. And if you really want to get to know someone, just looking at the behavior isn't, isn't going to get you the full picture. No, that's true. And that's uh, something called subtext uh, in, uh, in acting. And what are they really saying? What am I really saying when I say, hello, how are you? Is it, God, I hope you aren't doing so well so that I can inherit all your millions. <laughs> or is it, are you in a good mood today? So you won't hit me, sm smash me, you know, hit me in the face. You know, what, what do I really mean when I say, hello, how are you? I'm listening to what you're saying. And I'm also, I can't help but also think like, you're another one who also didn't go to school and is doing just fine and, and are excelling at expressing yourself and, and living. Is it fair to say that you're living how you want to live the way you want to live? Yes. And a lot of that is therapy though. And also is the real therapy because I went to therapy and I also had an eating disorder from 16 to 28. So 12 years. And during that time, that struggle, I think really put me in touch with my shadow self, my dark self, which you have to, as if you're an actor to accept the size of yourself that aren't, that are messy and not so pretty and not so in alignment with who you think you are. Cause we're all more complicated than just one thing. And so that very, that over, not only going through that, but overcoming that helped me not only have a lot of gratitude, but a lot of empathy for people because I grew up very, very lucky also. At the same time that I struggled with this eating disorder, I also grew up very fortunate with parents who loved me, with who educated me, who supported me uh, financially when I needed it, and also emotionally. So I just have been very, very fortunate. So having that challenge is important, has been important in my growth and made me appreciate my life now and taught me how to be authentic. Because actually the, uh, the reason that, and I think acting did that too, is teach me how to be more authentic as a person things like addictions come up when you're not, when you're not authentic. I both want to ask, it's hard for me not to ask about that experience, but I also don't want to, I want to respect if it's not something to ask about, but it was it, it sounds like there was a crucible that, that made you, that helped forge you. Yes. I don't, I'm not familiar with that term. Tell me, I know there's those, the play, the crucible and, but what does it mean? So crucible is like a, um, 
my understanding is it's something that you, you forge. Like it's, uh, I'm picturing metal going into molten metal going into something that makes it stronger. Ah. So it's it's something a very difficult experience that going through it makes a big part of who you are. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of it. I mean, a lot of greats have ex- have gone through something that really they could have folded, but they didn't, and it made them stronger, and they learned about themselves. I am not one of those artists who believe you have to suffer for, you know, that you have to be unhappy to be a successful actor. But I do believe that uh, we need to all find our pain and our vulnerabilities. And sometimes if we coast through life because everything's going great, we never get deep because we never have to, because why would you go there unless you had to? Uh, Human beings are programmed to avoid pain, both emotional and physical. So I believe that me having to deal with my eating disorders, which was first anorexia and then bulimia, really did make me a better person and more in touch with all the arrays of emotions that people have. And a lot of that, I mean, I suppose I could have gone through bulimia without self-reflection. I don't know if I would have gotten through it. And so the therapy helped me with self-reflection, but it was a 12-step program that actually got me to stop actually throwing up and binging after 12 years. So I improved greatly through therapy and learned a lot. Maybe I need that would have I would have gotten better just with that. But within a month of going to the 12-step program, I stopped throwing up and binging. I'm reading what that now is for you is, is confidence, self-awareness, uh, security. Well, gratitude, because once you ha- when you are over- overcome an addiction, I think you feel so grateful that you don't have that huge weight on you of the secrecy and the, as much as I was honest, I told people I had an eating disorder, but I would never tell them in the throes of a binge. So it was always like, oh yeah, I had a bad day yesterday. I binged, you know, I I never was completely honest. Mm -hmm. So having gone through it, I, I just feel like I'm a more solid, I'm a more grateful person. And yeah, life seems so much easier. It's funny because people start addictions like food addiction or sex addiction, uh, gambling, drugs, because they're trying to avoid pain. But Mm -hmm. what happens is, is that the addiction itself becomes more painful than what you were avoiding, but then you're so, you're so in it, you can't get out. So when you finally stop, it's, you have so much relief. Uh, I did at least for not having this burden anymore. So I think, yeah, it made me stronger as a person because I also know my vulnerabilities. I know I could get back there, even though it's been uh, let's see, 28 and 57. So it's been 29 years. I think, am I right? 29 years, 29 years since I've thrown up or, or binged really. I think, I don't even think I've binged. Maybe, yeah, I might've had a kind of a bingey feeling, but I haven't thrown up, which is the most important measurement for me in almost 30 years. I appreciate you sharing this so openly. And I'd like to come back to this moment in when we get back to talking about the environment in a bit. Because I, I'm increasingly seeing, I have not found myself addicted in the, in the way that you've described it, but I think a lot of us are, the way that we do stuff with, I think there's a lot of overlap between addiction and how we behave with respect to the environment and so a lot of the choices we make. And I, maybe I can get there by way of the other thing besides acting was diet for a small planet, which was, I've often traced back on my eating habits of, I think that's the first book that I read this would be in the mid eighties, early eighties, maybe that where it first got me thinking, like I could do something other than eating meat. I thought you had to eat to live. I don't know. I guess I, I don't have a big question here, but it was, I, I saw that and thought, 
Yeah, it really made a big difference. Did, did that start things for you in, in the environmental direction? I read Diet for a Small Planet when I was 14. And that, yes, that was the catalyst for me to become vegetarian. And this would have been in 19, uh, let's see, 14, I think 77 mm-hmm. would have been. So vegan wasn't even a concept that I knew of, at least. So that meant I just gave up meat. I still had dairy and I wore leather uh, and, and silk and wool until the 80s. So for another uh, 10 years. But yeah, Diet for a Small Planet was the first book I read that made me aware that what I ate made a difference. And it wasn't for animal rights, it was for the environment. That was the main message in the book. So you also, it sounds like you also had a, a process for me that it was really years between first stopping eating meat, but then I jammed up the dairy and eggs and then took years before I would lower those and years finding out about hydrogenated oils. And, and it wasn't quick at all. And it really wasn't, um, many of the steps, it's not like I wanted to, it's more like I kind of had to just after the stuff I'd read something, I'd learn about corn syrup and I think, oh, well, no big deal. And one day I'm just like, like months later, I'm like, I can't get that anymore. And I was like, but it tastes so good. And then just one day it just was unappetizing. Did you also, did you also have these stages that took a long time? Yes. I mean, I think one of my biggest regrets in life is that it took me 33 years to go from vegetarian to vegan. So within that, a couple of years after becoming vegetarian, when I was in a junior or either a sophomore or junior in high school, I wrote a book report on animal liberation, which is a book about, it's an animal rights treatise. And so it came from an animal rights perspective, whereas Francis Ford LePay's book, Diet for a Small Planet, was an environmental treatise. And I stopped anything tested on animals to the best of my ability then. So I didn't really wear makeup when I was in high school. So I I think it was, I stopped Revlon, Redken, those kind of products that um, tested on animals. And then in the eighties, I had a boyfriend who was an animal rights activist and I stopped leather, wool, silk then. And I didn't stop dairy. And that was until 10 years ago just over 10 years ago. And that is because I, well, this is my excuse. Okay. So it was uh, my, my excuse was that I was afraid to restrict my diet because then I might go back to my eating disorder. And I was really scared to do that. So that was the, that was a story I had running in my head. Mm -hmm. What happened when I did give up dairy in October of 2010 was that my relationship with food got even healthier because now food was more was a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I abstained from certain foods actually, you know, just filled me. And so my diet became a- aligned with my values in a true way. And I was more authentic as a person. So that was an unexpected thing. And I, that's uh, one of the reasons why I feel like I had this story in my head that was just really make believe that if I restricted quote unquote, and took out dairy and eggs that I would somehow become anorexic again or feel deprived and become bulimic. And I, I just didn't know. The truth is, and you, you and I know as, as vegans, is that being vegan doesn't actually restrict your food at all. It actually can open up new worlds. It takes out three things. It takes out milk products, meat, and eggs. And there's a lot of other food, fruit, grains, nuts, seeds, <laughs> uh, vegetables that, that exist. There are many more of those in the world. And so... Yeah. I'd like to explore this. I have to change my language because when I talk about not eating, like avoiding packaged food or avoiding meat, 
people here, and it's, it's my language, avoiding, not, without. But my, my personal experience of it, and it does take a transition of learning to cook and things like that for me. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is in my heart, it's discovery and it's joy. And it's like, I love, one of my big joys is that there's berry trees in Manhattan. I know where they are. And I'm not, if you, if you're in Manhattan, I'll take you to see them, but I won't tell you where they are because like there's 8 million people. I can't, there's not enough to go around. And uh, maybe I'm being jealous about it, but (laughs) when I eat mulberries right off the tree, I feel like a king because no amount of money can get you fresher or better tasting than right off the tree. And, you know, a king or queen would have to do that themselves to get it better. And going to the farmer's market, it's just like this joy, this treat. And I did an episode of this podcast with my mom. And she says, Josh, I just don't have the passion for you for not flying, that you do for not flying. I say, I don't have a passion for not flying. I have a passion for exploring where I live and, and connecting with the community and things like that. And she's like, she doesn't believe me. She thinks I'm, she's like, Josh, I'm glad there are people like you and Greta who are sacrificing to show that it can be done and implying like you're not, you don't really like it. And I'm hearing in you, if I don't mistake, a joy, a variety. And, and am, am I right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I actually felt my life got better after each step of making a choice. So, yeah, you're right. It is hard to phrase it in a way that's more positive because then people don't fully understand you. Like, okay, I love, they don't, you need to tell them why well, I don't fly. So that are, instead of saying, I guess you could say, well, I choose to drive everywhere or I choose to ride my bike around as, as far as I can. And then when I can't, I, I choose to go by car. And I, I suppose there's ways to put it in a, in a positive way, but it, to me, actually not eating, it's sort of uh, not eating meat, dairy, not wearing leather, silk, wool, all those things are positive things. <laughs> it's like saying, ah, I didn't drink poison. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I do definitely find that my life is better. It's so much better. And I don't see it as a, if you think about it, you know, meat, there's only basically three or four meats people eat here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so you and I have probably much more variety in our nuts and seeds and grains and vegetables and fruit. So taking out four or five different, three meats or something is nothing. As you're speaking, I'm I'm learning fermenting. I started doing it last year and I'm just getting into it and it's just out of reach. So I can't show you. I'm doing this chutney that I'm just trying it. I did it once before and it was really good. And now I'm doing it again. And I threw some beets in and it's this beautiful, rich purple Mm. that, and it tastes really like, I can't describe how good it tastes. It's like the sour salt, uh, sweet, and it's, I wouldn't have known it except that I'm just trying things out. And it's, yeah, what you're saying is rings true. Just think of all the milks in the, in the store. There's, there's cow's milk mm-hmm. and there might be goat's milk, but otherwise on the plant side, you've got hemp, almond, cashew, soy, rice. You've got all these many more choices. And now they mix them all up too. So it can be like oat plus soy and so how can you say that a vegan has is somehow restricting or sacrificing when you've got basically cow's milk on one side and about eight other choices on another side, if you were to pick sides, that is. So Yeah, you know, here's something I haven't said, but you know, there's this insult that sometimes people lob, which is like soy boy. I think implying that soy creates estrogens or something like that. But actually, 
milk from a cow is coming from a female cow. I think it's got, I think that's one of the greater sources of hormones. That's right. Soy is the opposite. Anyway, so that's. Not only is the, is it from milk from a female cow, it's from a female pregnant cow or a, a cow who has just had a calf. So it is highly estrogenic and the estrogens from soy are phytoestrogens. And if you want to get technical, what they do is they actually bind to estrogen receptors so that other estrogens can't get in. So in terms of that's why soy is cancer protective because it will bind into estrogen uh, receptors in your body that might otherwise get um, be, be uh, filled up with estrogen that's less healthy, like estrogen from a cow. Are you also a big fan of Dr. Michael Greger? Uh, I love, it's a joke in my family about how much I, and with my uh, podcast co-host, Dotsie Bash, about how much I love Dr. Greger. <laughs> Is that where you got that from? Because that's where I got that, what you just talked about. Probably, you know, I do read a lot and also interview a lot of doctors on my own podcast. So uh, I get a lot of information. So yeah, go back to something that you said about uh, how when we became vegetarian, we upped our dairy and egg intake. And that's probably true with a lot of vegetarians. And most people do give up meat first. And then if they become vegan, they then they'll give up dairy. But Every single doctor whom we have interviewed on our podcast, which for good, except for Dr. Michael Greger, said that it's more important for your health to give up dairy and eggs first. They would by, by far tell us, if you're doing it for health, then give up the dairy first, um, which is interesting because most people become vegetarian uh, for health. Or a lot of people become vegetarian for health and they're just giving up meat when actually if they gave up dairy, they'd be well ahead. And I'll add anyone passing through New York City, come by for my famous no packaging vegan stew, and then you'll just do it because it tastes so good. <laughs> That's right. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I do want to talk about population because there's so few people I can talk to about it where it's reasonable and makes sense. And did you, because I feel like that's one of the places I suspect if someone's a politician, if they mention maybe the population shouldn't grow so much, they're not going to get elected. How did it feel? Was it a risk for you to, do, to give that talk? Were you chomping at the bit to give it? How did it feel preparing for it? Uh, no, I, I had been speaking in schools anyway around Los Angeles. I took in the early 90s, I took three months off just to speak in schools. And I developed a curriculum with a, another uh, friend of mine who actually is a professor. So he knew about teaching and I, and I knew a lot about population. So today uh, we got together and put together um, something. We spoke to over 6,000 students around LA, high school and middle school. And we never had any pushback because of the, it's how you present it. I mean, the problem, the fact that human numbers are growing so fast the fact that that generates such defensiveness from people comes a lot from the 1970s when China and India forced people to lower their fertility by, you know, giving 
sterilizing people who had to, uh, more than one child or uh, financially dinging them if, or, and their village for having too many kids, et cetera. So there was a lot of pressure and it was coercion on the part of China and India, but that is not what you and I are talking about when we talk about the need to lower human fertility rates. So I'm confident that if the message is discussed, that there should be no, there won't be as much resistance. There'll be some resistance because humans are biologically driven to reproduce. So some people get mad at you if they think, feel guilty about the fact that they might want to have three kids. But when you explain to them how it's better for their kids, if there are fewer kids on the planet, uh, fewer people on the planet, then there's, I think it's just numbers, really. Ultimately, it's logic. Human beings have no problem talking about populations of deer need to be, can't go out of whack with the environment or the space in which they live. But when it comes to humans, we seem to not be able to use the same metric. Yeah, I, I guess partly I'm talking to you so that I'm using you to give myself permission to speak more about it because I feel like if I talk about it too much, at some point, someone's going to push back and be like, uh, be fruitful and multiply. I haven't, I haven't had, I, you know, I don't look at comments on the internet in terms of so that, that the TEDx talk is on YouTube and it has almost 600,000 views, I think now. And I have, I don't, I mean, I haven't had any um, issues with people telling me I'm a terrible person because I speak on this issue. So I, I encourage you to, I hope that you do, because as an intellectual, I think you can, you, you can have um, a lot of good effect on people. They respect what you say. I will do it more now. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of taking baby steps and finding each step. Yeah. With all these things, every time I do something, a lot of people say, Josh, you're so extreme for all these things, but I'm extreme if I compare myself to the mainstream, but each time I do something, I I always find role models. And then I become part of a new community. Something outside my horizon becomes in my horizon as I take steps and something that was once in my horizon becomes out of my horizon. And so you've just emptied my horizon. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's so interesting about the word extreme because people have said to me, oh, you're, you're extreme and you exercise and your diet, being vegan. And, and I think sitting for eight hours a day and not moving your body is extreme. And I think eating a lot of meat and products that were produced with lots of suffering and through animal ag is extreme. Uh, so just it's really who you're comparing it to, Right. Oh yeah. My usual comparison is like people like, you know, I I exercise every morning, every evening. So I've like, I have done 165,000 burpees plus and people are like, Oh, that's so extreme. I'm like the average American watches five hours of TV a day. (laughs) I'm nowhere close to the amount of time or money that they spend on those things. I'm not even close. Like it's 10%. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. That's a great analogy. I agree. As someone who doesn't own a television, we do watch online, but we have these little uh, laptops. And so it's not a particularly, we don't spend a lot of money or time, uh, you know, watching television. I don't spend a lot of money or time watching television compared to the average American. Yeah. And uh, I I don't know. I don't know what's happening on Game of Thrones. (laughs) It it doesn't bother me. Actually, one day I was walking home. Now I, I pick up litter every day. And so during the pandemic, it forces me to go outside, among other things. Uh, when you say you pick up litter, is it just when you're outside or do you have a certain amount of time that you, that you say, oh, I need to go out and pick up litter? Or is it when you're outside? There was a, there's some day when I, I put on my blog that I was going to do it. And so I know the date when it started. I have a spreadsheet. So it was like four years ago, I think, maybe five. 
And I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a daily habit of picking up litter, at least one piece a day. When the pandemic happened, then New York, I mean, everyone's, get, everyone's eating out like every meal now. So there's all this packaging all over the streets. And now there's been a snowstorm for or a couple snowfalls. So they're not picking up as much garbage. So people keep putting, they'll just put something on top of the garbage and it falls off. Mm. And everyone looks at it like, uh, oh, sanitation is their problem. I'm like, you got to turn off the faucet, not just use a spoon to get the water out of the flood. But everyone sees it as, you know, someone else some, some other time. So now I pick up more like, I don't know, 20 pieces of garbage a day. But also since the pandemic, I don't know how much time you spent in New York City, but the northwest corner of Washington Square Park has, as long as I've lived here, which is about 20 years, when you walk through, they're always like, smoke, smoke, want to buy some weed? So there's the drug dealers in that corner. And in the pandemic, there's a lot less people who live here, living here, they're outside the city. And so now I'm seeing syringes and crack pipes. So I've decided to pick up litter in that corner, especially. Mm. And I was hoping that they would pick up that they, oh, someone cares, we'll do it too. That hasn't happened yet. But I've had, I mean, I've sat down with a couple of them for like a half hour, 45 minute conversations just to meet. And it's part of my community. With the drug dealers or the drug users and ask them to pick up? As far as I can tell, it's, I haven't asked them to pick up because I don't know them well enough yet. Mm -hmm. I can tell that they're like, who is this guy? I don't really know who they are. So at this stage, we're just kind of meeting. Like there's one guy I've spent a little more time with and he's got a story and he hasn't shared it with me yet, but there's something in him that is like, he really, there's a few things he said to me a couple of times of when you reach the end of, of the line and you have nothing else to do. And he's very well-spoken. So I didn't know where it was going to go. At first I thought I would do it. They would just see, and they would follow, which was a little naive of me. Instead, I'm, I'm meeting people in my community that I wouldn't met otherwise. Mm. Like you and I took a while to each step. Maybe they're just taking a while. It won't be um, instantaneous that they start changing their habit of dropping things on the ground. But eventually they say, you know, after getting a certain amount of messages, then people will change or more apt to change, but they generally don't change on the first time they see that message. Yeah. And we'll see. I mean, I don't really know where it's going. It's, it's an adventure for me now. Anyway, one time I was walking home from there and I was walking home and thinking, how many people go and pick up garbage? Like, that's not a common thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what would I rather do? And I thought, would I rather watch TV? I was like, there's no, I think every, if you ask me a million times, a million times, I would say, I'd rather go pick up garbage from the street than to watch, you know, Queen's Gambit, which I don't know what that's about. <laughs> it's about, I have seen it. It's about chess. <laughs> Is it good? Is it worth watching? It's okay. I, I think it's better to pick up garbage. So yeah, when you come to New York, we'll pick up garbage together. Okay, that sounds good. My husband and I pick up garbage when we when we hike, and and sometimes he'll say, "You know what? We don't have time to pick up garbage today, Alexandra." In fact, that was a couple of days ago. He went, "We have to get done, so we cannot pick up garbage." I'm like, "Really? Okay, it's painful to walk by it." So, I'm gonna guess you still picked up at least a piece or two. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. I did. At the end, you know, I was like, "I'm sorry, but I just." <laughs> <laughs> when you act on the environment, what motivates you? What do you think about when you think about the environment? I just think it's the right thing to do. So even though I feel pretty pessimistic about the planet and uh, human, the future of humans on the planet, I feel like it and my individual action of picking up some garbage might not make a difference in the big scheme of things, but I feel like, I guess I feel like it does make a difference, but I also believe that it's 
you have to do the right thing, even if it's not going to yield some, some outcome that, you, that makes you feel good. So when you say the right thing, you're saying what you do, I'm, like, where does it come from? What's in, are there images or memories or stories that started it all or that you have in mind? Well, my mother was born in England and she was, she was born during the World War II. So uh, just, well, yeah, I guess just before. So when she was about five or six, that's when they started in England, started rationing and things like that. So when she came to America, she had very much an ethic of not wasting. So we recycled and we composted when I was a kid. And it wasn't from an environmental ethic for her. It was a just, you don't waste. That's, you just don't do that. But because we grew up in the country, uh, I was born in New York City, but we, I spent my formative years in New England. Because we grew up in the country, her, you know, ref, not <laughs> refusing to, when we said we were cold, she would say, put on a sweater. She wouldn't turn up the heat. So that was an, became an environmental thing for us. And I remember being at my friend Lori Blakey's house and seeing a cat food can in the garbage. You know, empty was used, but they hadn't washed it out. And my, my mother used to wash them out, take off the top, crush it and separate the paper. And that's what we did. And I, I couldn't believe there was this cat food can in there. And that's when I realized, well, other people don't do the same thing as the Paul family does. So I grew up with an environmental ethic that uh, you, you did it because it was the right thing to do, I guess. <laughs> It's so automatic. Is it something, do you feel a connection with your mom still to this day when you're doing these things? Is that still in there? Oh yeah. I I give my mother rolls her eyes, but I give her complete credit for the uh, activism. She's a different kind of activist. You know, she gave blood and she volunteered. And so she wasn't a street sign waving person or she and I both have done civil disobedience together and gotten arrested. But most of the time it was hers were just daily actions that were the right thing to do, like recycling and composting. And you donated blood every couple of months. And 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 I I, I remember thinking, well, you know, I just got a positive point of I got a just positive association with those kind of actions for many reasons. I mean the recycling was because, you know, we just did that and it became a habit. But then with giving blood, you know, you got cookies. She got cookies after giving blood. And that to me was as a, you know, seven-year-old, it was like, wow, you get free cookies. She, she also, we, sugar was very restricted in our household. So that to me was just amazing. So I just uh, always have felt that when you do something good, actually you, it benefits you, whether it's cookies or just feeling good about yourself. Well, also the diet, also the, all the things, picking up the garbage, things like that, they're, they all fit that pattern, right? Well, I suppose it's probably part of my identity as an environmentalist. I mean, my sister, I have a twin sister and she jokes that when she's in a bad mood, her reflection, what she does, if she's in a bad mood, she's like, I don't want to, you know, I deserve this. I'm, I'm upset is that she won't recycle. You know, that's, that's her rebelling is that Uh I'm not going to recycle this. So it's really against our nature not to think of the environment first. So, yeah. So I invite you at your option to think of something to do, to act on this connection with the family that's relevant to the environment. And you're doing a lot already. So maybe you're all tapped out, but maybe not. And most people, when they hear this, they're so used to hearing what's the biggest thing you can do or what's the most important thing you can do. Or what does the New York Times say that you're supposed to do? And I want to give listeners a chance of, of hearing people and themselves also 
going from intrinsic motivation, from the what motivates them. So I wonder if there's something that you're not already doing that you yourself would do as opposed to telling other people to do it. Something that based on this family connection, this what feels natural and right. And it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be small. Oh, uh, so... I mean, look, I, I know I'm an environmentalist, but believe me, there's so much more I could do. Uh, I mean, I recognize that. This is one of the reasons, just to go back to population, is that a lot of people believe that to be able to save, uh, to be able to live on a planet, we just have to lower our consumption. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe that Americans, or because Americans just fight over, they don't even want to wear masks. So they're not going to want to lower their consumption, like give up. AC or have a smaller house or give up driving. That's something that they, uh, I, that's why I believe the population equation is so important is that we are not going to be able to live on this planet with 11 billion people and quote unquote, lowering our consumption because we won't, humans will not want to do that voluntarily. All that to say is that as an environmentalist, I still have things that I way could do. I mean, certainly compared to you too, Josh, I mean, I, my art, we have garbage. Uh, we have recycling. We I compost and we recycle, but we still recycle. And recycling is a very ineffective thing, <laughs> as you know, right? Better not, as you said, better not to generate it in the first place. So my biggest issue this year, I've been much more aware of plastics mm-hmm. and I'm not exactly sure what to do, but I really like this hummus from our farmer's market, but it's in plastic. And mm-hmm. so I have made hummus over and over to try and make it so that I don't crave this hummus, Uh but I have failed. My hummus is just not as good. And so I keep buying the hummus in the plastic. There's a couple of comments I have to make. The first one is that your reaction of, I know I'm an environmentalist, but there's so much more that I could do is so refreshing for me because I say this to so many people. And the most common reaction is, well, here's what I already do. I do this, this, and this, and this, and I don't know what else I can do. Oh, golly. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, have you thought of comparing yourself to someone who's not in America? Because I think most people would think that you're doing a lot, but I can't, that's not a particularly productive thing to say. So I don't (laughs) say it. So I'm indulging in getting to say it to you because you can, you're laughing. Uh, And if I read you right, you've made the view, you've made the switch that it's like, you get to do it. I don't have to steward. I get to steward is the way I put it. I feel it's a privilege to be able to, I mean... To me, it, it, it makes my life better to do good. And I also recognize that as uh, I, I do have a choice, I don't know, what would it be that someone who, for example, someone who's poor might not be able to, to go to work in a car that is an electric car, for example, because they can't charge at their apartment and their renter and they can't afford another car. So they're driving a car that pollutes a lot. So as a person of who's comfortable, I have a lot of choices to actually, ironically, buy less and spend less money. Yeah. But the you know, thing with plastic is, is an issue, especially when it comes to food. Because I think food, you know, because of my issues with food for so long, you know, I'm, I'm loath to, I, you can see my resistance of giving up this hummus that I really like that's healthy and in a lot of ways, but it, it does come in plastic and I hate it. And my husband and I talk about it a lot. You know, we did give it up for several weeks where I didn't buy any, and then it came back in because I justified it in some way. So the you also said something, uh, and I forgot what you said because I was listening to you, and there was uh, there was something else that you said that was also 
like you get to do stuff. You had a very looking forward to it perspective of like, I, I get to try new things. And part of me, I don't know you that well, but my mom makes a really good hummus. Oh, she does. Yeah. And, and, and an even better baba ganoush. It's like off the charts. And I'm kind of thinking like I could put you in touch with her and she could tell you how to make it from scratch. You should have her send me, if you could get the recipe. And so instead of my family, be your family. <laughs> you mentioned like family. So, okay, we're all one family. I'd like to, to have your mom's recipe and I, I'll try that for sure. So then the next thing, after someone comes up with something, it sounded like you were saying something about maybe trying to experiment with some non-plastic hummus. Yeah, myself. I think was the only answer, really. Although I did notice that I was, you know, you use a lot of can, you use cans mostly if you're making hummus or glass. Do you have a pressure cooker? Um, no. Oh. Why do you make hummus? Pressure cooker? Pressure cooker is your life is going to change. Pressure because cooker. The bulk chickpeas and you can get the bulk chickpeas and the after doing it in the pressure cooker a couple times you have to do it to make sure that the time and the amount of water is right for you know your pre- pressure cooker. But after you get after you do it a few times, the stuff in a can is devoid of texture. It's it's like it doesn't have the texture, it doesn't have the flavor, and it's more polluting. So once you switch, and then after you get used to just doing one bean at a time, you know, just beans. I don't mean one bean at a time. Uh, you know, just doing chickpeas. Then if you want, I can tell you how to start putting vegetables in so that you get this famous no packaging vegan stew. And it's like I can make seven or eight meals in ten minutes prep time, and it's just incredibly, it's really good stuff and life-changing. Well, I will go get a used, because that's what I purchase, yep. a used pressure cooker. Mine was used off of Craigslist, yeah. And uh, yeah, I will. I don't know the difference between a pressure cooker and a, is it like a rice cooker? Rice cooker, they're similar, but a pressure cooker seals like really tight and it goes up to way higher pressure, which allows the, basically the water molecules go into the, what you're cooking faster and deeper. So it cooks it much faster. So um, like lentils cook in four minutes. Oh, uh, Black beans cook in eight minutes. Chickpeas are a little bit longer for some reason. And it's just incredibly fast. And, it, and when you put multiple things in together, the flavors mix so that I cook something in five minutes and it tastes like it's been stewing all day long. Mm. And as a side benefit, these things are really, the electric ones are really well insulated because you can touch it even though it's super hot inside. And so the amount of power going into it is very low relative, you know, it's not being wasted to steam going out. So it's a win on, in many different areas. So I'm hearing that maybe my challenge is to get a pressure cooker and start cooking uh, beans and maybe stew. Yes. If that works for you, then I propose a second conversation where you share how it went. And if you want along the way, I could give you a few tips and I'll send you my mom's description of how to do at least the hummus. Yeah, that'd be great. Does she cook it in a, in a pressure cooker too? She does now. Yeah. I also have this family thing that like it's, my sister got me into composting and then my mom and my sister both, they really cook from scratch. And that's where I started getting this from. I was working, I had my apartment uh, renovated and I stayed at my sister's place for a while. And it was for the first time seeing her getting all the stuff from the farmer's market and cooking stuff from scratch. And I was like, oh, I guess I can do this. So I talked to them about gardening and my stepfather about gardening. And it's a, a lot of family stuff. And when I brought to my mom the pressure cooker, I could finally give her something. Her mom used a pressure cooker, but it exploded a couple times on the farm. And so she was like, I don't want to get something that explodes. 
but these things are really safe now. Oh, okay. So I brought back to her something to connect with her mom. And it was finally, I was, I was contributing back to her and I felt really good. That sounds fantastic. Well, I will. Yes, I'm happy to get a pressure cooker and try it and let you know how it goes. Great. So then if it's okay with you, then we'll schedule off not being recorded. Like if it's okay to have a second conversation here, how it goes. Sure. Okay. I think we're running out of time. So I want, I'd like to wrap up with, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything you want to say to the listeners? No, I, uh, I mean, it's what, it's your podcast. So I, I, <laughs> I defer to you in terms of what you feel is important to share with them. But, um, well, they could, since we mentioned my TED talk, just, you know, Google Alexandra Paul TEDx talk and it will come up and it's just, I think it's 11 minutes, maybe it's not very long. It's a shorter one. Yeah. Yeah. So it might even be nine. Anyway, it's not very long. And so, uh, yeah, I'd be curious to, to hear if they get offended or upset by hearing it, uh, and uh, maybe they'll encourage you, Josh, because I think there'll be positive uh, feedback from it to talk more about the issue. So please contact us. Oh, and switch for good. Can you tell us? Oh, I should ask more about that. That's all right. So people can check out um, my podcast. It's called Switch, the Digit 4 Good, Switch for Good. And it advocates for a plant-based lifestyle. And my my co-host, Dotsie Bausch, is a vegan Olympian. And we talk a lot about the health benefits of a plant-based diet. So if any of your listeners are interested in, uh, in that, we, we sometimes go into the animal things, but because uh, it's mostly around the health benefits of, of uh, a plant-based diet and they are welcome to, to listen to doctors and nutritionists and chefs and athletes about, about their experience being plant-based. When I meant to ask, uh, sorry, I, I'm not wrapping up very well. She was in Game Changers. Was she a major piece of it or was she one person in it? Dotsie Bausch is in Game Changers. She was the track cyclist in Game Changers. So she was featured in it where they interviewed a lot of uh, athletes. She was one of the one of only two females, actually, because Game, Game Changers was mostly geared towards men. But she was one of two female athletes whom they interviewed. The other one was a runner. And then there was Dotsie, uh, who won a silver at the uh, Olympics as a vegan. Okay. So she wasn't one of the main organizers, but she was one of the main people in it. She wasn't, yeah, she wasn't a producer or she was one of the people that they referred to in the film as thriving on a plant-based diet and how it changed her life. Well, I would love to keep asking more questions and I hope to pick up here when, when next time you're hearing about the pressure cooker stuff. Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm not much of a cook, by the way. So pressure cooking sounds, I eat a lot of raw vegetables with hummus. And um, because I, you know, I'm not crazy about cooking. So cooking my own garbanzo beans from scratch, um, you know, I've soaked them before and made hummus from from that, from the bulk, from our co-op. But yeah, it sounds like it, it will help my cooking skills. I predict they will, but I don't want to lead the witness. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Well, Alexandra Paul, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you, Joshua. 